Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Mark Thompson. Get woke. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, what is necropolitics? I want to talk about that today with my very special guest. She's an associate professor of women's and gender studies and Africana studies. And she's received her PhD in American studies from the Graduate Institute of Liberal Arts at Emory University and has an MA from Emory uh, and bachelor's degrees in English and political science from Howard University. And again, she is an associate professor at Rutgers right now. We're always happy to talk to her. Professor Dr. Brittany Cooper, Professor Crunk, is here, y'all. Professor, how are you today? I'm great, how are you, Mark? Just fine, just fine. Necropolitics, I have been fascinated with that term since you have really popularized it. It's not a new term per se, but you've kind of brought it into the popular conversation um, at at the latest since the pandemic started. So let's start a little bit with it. How how did you, come across this term and and what does it mean? Sure. So necropolitics is a term coined by a South African political theorist named Ashil Mbembe uh, back in 2003. Uh, And it was meant to think about the ways that that governments engage different groups of people as populations. So essentially the argument is that Governments have some like so a population that the government values in our context that would be white people that they build policy that facilitates those folks living and thriving things that help them with housing with access to healthy food uh, ways that the government functions very well for their needs and that is creating a political context in which they are allowed to live and thrive. And so what Mbembe comes along to say is that that formulation in some ways is about biopolitics and a a different theorist coined that term. And Mbembe says, well, look, when you think about racial oppression, then biopolitics is not sufficient. It's not just about the fact that the government actively supports some groups living while kind of letting other groups languish and die through lack of support. That's too passive. 
it's a more active process where the government helps some folks to live and actively does things that make other people die, that actively does things that lead to premature death, right? And so premature death, whether we're talking about at the hands of police or we're talking about the chronic illnesses that beset Black people because of decades and centuries of racism, those are state-sanctioned policies that create a context in which Black people are susceptible to premature death. Uh, and then what, what then happens is you have a scholar like Ruth Wilson Gilmore who says, who defines racism itself as being susceptible to premature death, being disproportionately susceptible. So that means that part of what it means to be Black is that we live in a context that is built on, on making us die before it is our time to go. Uh, and so I came to thinking about necropolitics for two reasons in this moment. One, because we're in the middle of a pandemic that is disproportionately killing Black people. The, the latest statistics that I read from the APB Research Lab uh, suggest that one in every 1,450 Black people has died from COVID. That's not one in every 1,450 people that has gotten COVID. That is literally that if you take one in every 1,450 Black people that lives in the United States, one in every group of almost 1,500 Black people has died. Conversely, when you look at the death rates among white people, that number is something like one in every 3,350. So it's high across the board, but we are dying at a rate that is three times and some change higher than white people are dying. And that has to do with our, you know, underlying conditions, high blood pressure, diabetes, all of those things, which are still deeply rooted in histories of racial stress. So that was the first thing. The second reason that I came to necropolitics in this moment was because very early in the pandemic, really around April, when it became clear that Black people were dying at alarming rates and liberal media sites like MSNBC began to report that every night with a very particular focus on the racial dimensions of this virus, all of a sudden where the conversation prior to, in the weeks prior had been, we've got to shut down, we've got to contain this thing. Then you saw a pivot at the national level brought about by the president and then followed up by governors across the country. We've got to reopen, we can reopen. And you even saw white people who gave interviews and who said, it's not affecting me. Yes, I know there's a disease and people are dying, but people like me aren't the people dying. And so when it became clear that this was a disease that was killing black people, Latino people, uh, Native Americans, but not white people at the same high rates, then we moved prematurely to a conversation about reopening. And it is why we're seeing such dramatic spikes around the country for disease that we were flattening the curve on just two months ago. Yeah. And so that's necropolitics in action. So then there's a strong argument to be made. And, and you believe that the policy decisions that Trump and some of these uh, governors have been making have been policy decisions surrounding who lives and dies. And since we're dying disproportionately, that's okay. Yeah, no doubt. And that's exactly what I'm saying. Necropolitics as a word literally means the politics of death, right? And so it is about the way that the politics of death shapes how political leaders make choices. And we already know from our lived experience that as black people in particular, that there is a devaluing of black life. That's why we get so angry when we see how the police treat us because we know that there's a fundamental devaluing of black life that drives that kind of treatment. And that doesn't just exist in our interactions with police, that devaluing of black life shapes policy at every level in the country. And so this became just one more opportunity for these, for, for white men who have a disproportionate amount of power to then make the case that our lives were worth risking in order to save the economy. Now, they didn't just make that argument about Black people, and they weren't specific in making it about Black people. But you saw the politician down in Texas very early in the pandemic saying, look, we'll 
we'll, you know, sacrifice, us older people will sacrifice our lives if it means that we can reopen the economy because we don't want to kill an American way of life. And so it's all these groups that we think are expendable. We think old people are expendable. We think folks with disabilities are expendable. And then we certainly think every group of people of color in the country, particularly Black folks, are expendable. And so across the board, look, I given the, the brazen nature of white supremacist rhetoric coming out of the White House, which is something that we haven't seen in my lifetime in the presidency, then I wouldn't, I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that there are probably some population control conversations that are happening in, in the White House and population control conversations always attend to white supremacy. Well, how can we have more of us and less of them, right? Mm-hmm. And, and in this day and age, most good thinking sort of folks that have a good understanding, whenever we begin to talk about population control, people go ahead and run away because you know then that you are doing some, some kind of Nazism kind of stuff. You're doing some, some thinking that's real problematic. But this White House, I mean, think about the way that they are trying to manipulate census counts, right? All of that is about saying that certain groups have value and that those groups have structural value and literally saying that those are the only people we want to count, that we only want the numbers to reflect the people that we think matter. And there's a logic to that that is not just about the census, but is about locking up you know, immigrant folks at the border on the one hand. And then conversely, then you see these numbers spiking all over the country disproportionately. So 140 something thousand Americans have died. And, you know, as of this last week and over 30,000 of those Americans who have died have been black people. And part of what we know about this is that if we had died at the rates that white people were dying, something like 16,000 black people would still be alive. Mm. Mm. And 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 I and, and here here is what frustrates me about this conversation more generally. All we are hearing in this moment is a bunch of numbers. And because of the onslaught and the trauma that has been represented by the Trump administration, we are not able anymore to process the magnitude of those numbers. So I'm saying to you that 16,000 black people would be here. Oh, if, if the system weren't racist, 30,000 Black people would be here if the government had figured out how to manage COVID with the lead time they had coming right. into the year. Right. And so we have lost 30,000 Black people and 140 some odd thousand Americans and people living here in America in four months time. And we say those numbers and nobody flinches. Yeah. <laughs> we become, become numb. Um, yeah. And, yeah. 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 Well, and let's face it, you know, the mainstream media would not call it what it is because you can say that to me, we can say that here, but no one has the courage to say there are probably population control conversations in the White House. One, they won't even remind us in reporting of what he asked Dr. Fauci, his document. He said, can't this just wash over the United States? That's a hell of a statement. If you or I said that, people would be like, well, what is Mark and Brittany talking about? Um, but the other thing too, Brittany, people think when it comes to white supremacy, you have to say it explicitly. Let's let black people die. It, it, it's so ingrained. You don't even have to say that when you're in that bubble. You can say other things. Like, let's just let it wash over. And then we have to interpret that for our folk friends in mainstream media because they don't read between those lines. Right, right. Yeah, look, it's this, it's this odd problem where white people still believe that objectivity is a thing that they, can, that they can actually achieve by talking about race. And so they think it's more objective and more fair and more befitting of journalistic standards to to deal with the president with the benefit of the doubt. But what happens when you, we have a president who not only has managed in four months time to kill 140,000 Americans across all races and classes, 
Mm. By gross mismanagement, and, and I'm using the language, I'm ascribing the language of kill to him because he is the person that bears the most responsibility for what happens in this country. And right. because when 140,000 people have died on your watch and we've never seen anything like that outside of a wartime scenario, then you are, then we get to hold your feet to the fire and say that your gross mismanagement of this, your sticking your head in the sand has literally led to all of this death. And so you have that, you have a president who has, uh, you know, brought out the US military against US citizens on US soil. You have a president who is now policing protesters across the country using unmarked, unnamed, um, you know, military officers and federal officers that we, that we then cannot hold accountable like he is engaging in fascist practices and part of the problem is that the sort of this sort of veneer of objectivity that the journalistic enterprise wants to have is the thing that's causing the problem because the president has picked a side he has said the media is an enemy of the presidency he has said that he is he governs in a way that he is an enemy of the people and if the media is the one measure that we have they're supposed to be on the side of the people and there is a point in history where you have to pick a side. And the problem is that folks are so afraid to f- be biased that it, it, it puts those of us who have to live in the aftermath of his poli- policy decisions at a disadvantage because then we don't have the official channels sort of backing up the things that we know to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, I tell people, even when I meet Black people who sort of struggle with this, well, how do you know it or how do we prove it or how do I get my white colleagues to understand? Impact matters more than intent. It's a very basic statement and it comes out of critical race theory and it matters. It means that it isn't just about what you intended to do. It's about the effect of the policy decisions that you're making. So even if Trump had not, even if we didn't know anything about uh, you know, like reopening the country or disproportionate black death. But what he had simply done was mismanage the pandemic. We didn't know at the beginning of the pandemic that it was going to kill more black people than any other group, but it still would have been a policy with racially biased effects just on the fact that it started killing more of us because of the underlying health conditions that we have. And so living in a country that won't acknowledge the see part, of, and, and this is a place where black communities struggle as well. We have deep shame around the fact that we have so many of these underlying conditions because we have bought white supremacy's line about this idea that it's our terrible behavior that's the reason we're more susceptible to this stuff. We have really bought into that. We don't eat healthy. We don't move. We don't exercise. We're all fat slobs. And that's why we deserve this. And the thing that the research says, and I've been yelling this everywhere I go, is that even when black people do the exact same diet plans and eating plans and exercise plans as white folks, they structurally, statistically don't get the same results. And it's because our bodies are always hopped up on a stress response because we're always under attack that actually makes it hard for us to even do some of those individual self-care kinds of things. And so this isn't about black people's bad behavior. It isn't about the fact that we don't love ourselves or take care of ourselves. It is about the fact that we live in a country that has decided that our lives don't matter, that has made a necropolitical choice to say, the world would be better with less of them. And it is very, white people are very particularly pivoted toward this because we're having massive demographic shifts in the country. You know, that's why the president's obsessed with the census. And that's also why you see those protesters, the white protesters who came out in the early days of May in the Midwest, both, you know, to protest on on the Capitol steps and also to say, we're trying to get people sick. We are insidiously trying to get people sick because they know that they are on the brink of losing political power because as demographic shifts come and more people of color outnumber white folks, we typically vote more with liberal candidates. And that is going to mean a massive restructuring of white power. And so then you get this this canard, this, this kind of, you know, this once in a lifetime event and white people are like, Here we go. This is our opportunity literally to winnow the people of color population so we can hang on to power. Yeah. We don't like to think that they're being that diabolical. And it might not be a rank and file white folks who are thinking like that, but think about who Trump has around him. Stephen Miller, uh, Steve Bannon, 
those guys are absolutely this kind of do this kind of diabolical thinking and strategizing and they're certainly in his head absolutely you know and, and when you think about it in the numbers there's motive whenever you're investigating murder you look for motive and opportunity and all of that yeah and the motive is what to um uh, winnow down to use your word the black vote the black elector yeah. so if he won in 2016 um vis-a-vis -vis 80 000 votes spread across three states i believe um, i mean michigan and wisconsin and i think pennsylvania what have you okay well where are we disproportionately dying but in parts of those three states so that's, that's the motive, that's the math that you have. And you're right, some of us get, we don't want to acknowledge it ourselves, but we better learn, Professor Crunk, because, I mean, these are the decisions that are being made that affect our lives. I think we have to remind people, okay, well, let's put aside COVID for a minute. What was mass incarceration all about but getting us off the books? What is the resistance to mail-in balloting and McConnell passing money out of the Senate to go toward mail-in balloting this year, but to get us off the books. So you have mass incarceration, no mail-in balloting, and a plague. And and what are we, we left with? I think we have to stop being naive about it. Yeah, look, Trump will do, will do anything to win the presidency, he will lie and cheat and steal in order to win. And if he has to kill and he's gifted the benefit of a pandemic, then he will do it. And so I don't know what the initial calculations were. I mean, I think he's just not a bright man, I, you know, despite being super manipulative, I don't think he's particularly bright. He doesn't retain, he doesn't integrate new information well. And so the folks around him understood what the implications of this were. And as we moved on into it, then they really began to understand the implications. And so it's exactly right. It's Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. It's these Southern states that all of a sudden might be able to be flipped blue. So think about where the pandemic is raging. It's raging in Florida. It's raging in Georgia. It's raging in Texas. And given Stacey Abrams gains in Georgia, there's the possibility we have a, a black man running for state Senate, I mean, running for the U.S. Senate out of Georgia, Raphael Warnock. And so there is the possibility of that state going blue. Texas could go blue. Um, and Florida, with its massive reenfranchisement of formerly incarcerated persons there, which they've had to fought, fight tooth and nail to, to both get those men their rights and then to fight the courts to not impose what amounted to a poll tax on all those black men who were then suddenly reenfranchised, Florida could absolutely go blue. And so now you've got this other thing that has come along to take out the population. And, and who is it taking out massively? It's taking out the Latinx folks, both citizens and undocumented people that Trump already hates and loves to get in the media and call rapists and bad hombres, and it's taking out black people. It's like the only people who have better numbers of survival than white people at this point are Asian Americans, but Native Americans have abysmal numbers as well. And we can certainly anticipate more on attacks on that community because you just have the Supreme Court give Native Americans lots of control over their own sovereignty out in Oklahoma. And white people are watching this stuff. Any of them that are politically tuned in are watching the, play, the, the sort of levers of power and the places where, here, because here is the thing that infuriates me. Black people, we play by the rules. We get a rap for being criminal, for not having any respect for the rule of law, for just being in the streets protesting, but we don't. We go out, we vote, we participate in the process. And the way that you know that we do it is because these folks wouldn't be working so hard to suppress the vote if it wasn't a, a, a tool that we were availing ourselves of. So we do participate, we are tuned in, we understand what the stakes are. And it's white folks, you know, in the aggregate who like, it's not that they don't participate in the process, it's that they have allowed Trump to rise and they have acted timid and shy and they won't do anything about him even though he is exploding norms daily. Every And, and I'm not, here's the thing that is, is so funny. When I make a statement like, 
every single week Donald Trump does something that in any other president would have been an impeachable offense. That's not hyperbole for the purposes of drama. This week, he tried to get what, I mean, this week he, he, I'm trying to think, what was the problem this week? Well, there's the, the problem of those unmarked federal agents who are going around actually uh, kidnapping, <laughs> kidnapping citizens off the streets. But he also tried to get his British ambassador to have a golf tournament in Britain move to one of the Trump clubs. So he induced, he had an ambassador, you know, go and basically make an official request for him to make money um, you know, it, personal money off of one of their events. So he used government resources in order to build up his personal bank account in any other presidency. I mean, of course, Barack Obama, but literally anyone else, any of those acts would have gotten this man impeached. And basically we just go around and we hear that news and we just keep on going. Yeah. Like this, I mean, he moves around with a level of impunity that is shocking to me. And the only way that I can make sense of it is that I just sometimes think that for white people, the psychic tear that Barack Obama represented in their idea of reality means that the only way they can reset the order of the universe for them so that, they, so that whiteness feels stable is for a white man who's dumb as hell to be able to go around and do whatever he wants to do. Right. That for them, the only way to respond to black excellence and dissent is white lawlessness. And if white lawlessness is allowed to reign unchecked, even for a limited period of time, then they will feel like the universe has, has rebalanced itself. And right. how perverse is whiteness if that is the way that it must move about in the world, not according to equality or justice, but according to this sort of unchained rule and reign of, 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 you know, of brute force, right? you saying that kind of reminds me is I hadn't thought about it that way before. It's like the scene in Django when um, uh, Jamie Foxx rides up on the horse. Yeah. And I think, frankly, Samuel Jackson, I've always felt he should have gotten an Oscar for playing the quintessential all the time. Correct. You know, what's he doing up on that horse? You And remember how white folks could not get over Barack Obama having a plane. There's always been Air Force One, but that was, they could not deal with that. So you're right, a black man doing things that heretofore he wasn't supposed to be able to do. We have to reset the balance by a white man going above and beyond what other racist white presidents have done suddenly to act like a doggone fool. Now, you mentioned the Lieutenant Governor of Texas, yeah. and he, admittedly was playing in, in necropolitics with the elder white population, which also says something that if you look at Fox News and you are the base that sustains that network and you watching that and they're telling you to your face that you got to die, uh, uh, Professor Cooper, something wrong with you that you sit up and participate in that and, and get, yeah, maybe I do need to die. But isn't that also a, a cultural statement because what we've always kind of said this about our communities, we take care of our elders, right? And other folk just kind of yeah. shift them off. I mean, and I know a couple of white folk who were like, did he just say that I need to go ahead and die? And they was not, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't get the memo that that's how they were supposed to be. So, I mean, if you're going to say that out loud to your own people, yeah, uh, what are you going to do with us? And, and, and one other thing I'd like you to address Again, the unwillingness to call a spade a spade. Yeah. Uh, there was some recent conversation the past couple of weeks about people still calling Trump's tirades and his whole thing about the Confederacy. Um, him, the press calling it racially charged or racially tinged. And people were saying, even some white journalists say, no, call it racist. That's what it Stop, you know, trying to put some other package around it. And if people would just call it, including this, these are decisions being made that are costing people's lives. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it would be impossible to ignore, as, as you've alluded to, with, with all of the kind of the, the numbness that has overcome people. It's kind of like, well, this is happening. No. And people getting lazy. Well, I don't really need no mask. I, you know, I don't need gloves anymore. I don't need to wash my hands as much. No, this is real and people are dying. Right. Look. 
here here is the hard part about this mark whiteness will eat its own in order to survive and that <laughs> that that is that is perhaps the truth that these elder white folks are coming to to understand and so many of them were like wait i'm not ready to die just to reopen the economy but they are learning the way that whiteness acts as a god in terms of our politics so there so the a there's that but b you know i'm reminded of jonathan metzl's work dying of whiteness uh his book dying of whiteness and one of the things that jonathan metzl argues is that some of these white folks know the particularly those in these kind of southern states that have rejected like medicare uh expansion and all of that they are having they are having high death rates prior to covid because of the opioid crisis because of a uh, extreme spike in suicides in 2015 16 and 17 i believe the white life expectancy rate went down for the first time in a century it hadn't been down since world war one which was the same era in which uh the covid pandemic uh i mean which with the um Spanish with flu. the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, that's World War One era. And a hundred years later, that's the last time we saw white life expectancy rates decrease because of the pandemic and because of World War One. And then they're going down in white communities again. And that has to do, you know, Jonathan Metzl says, look, basically all these folks have gotten on board with this Trump madness and that has had real material consequences for their everyday lives and particularly in terms of their access to health care both physical and mental health care uh, and it is ravaging their communities and we are literally seeing it take them out but they but one he talked to he interviews a man uh you know in this book and the guy says to him like well then i'll just have to die because i'm not going to vote differently i'm not going to not vote for trump even with your research about how that his policies might actually kill me and that was a powerful moment for me so even when the lieutenant governor of texas says the thing he isn't saying that we don't think covid will kill us he's saying for the broader project of white power we're willing to die what do you do when that's the place that these white men have come to in their thinking that they are more worried about they are willing to be martyrs for the cause of a kind of resurgence of white supremacy than they are you know thinking about self-protection and then therefore i think you're right at the point that you're willing to sacrifice your elders and yourself then i think we all need to be very very afraid about what kind of whiteness this is because it isn't the whiteness of self-preservation at any immediate level it's the preservation of an ideology and then and the thing is these white men are trying to preserve this ideology so that it'll still exist 50 years and 100 years from now yeah they're less concerned about whether it what it looks like in 2020 and they are more like we are about to lose hold of this republic and and that's why i do why i am heartened by the ways that black folks understand in this moment even though i was like super nervous about all the protests around the country because of the pandemic mm -hmm. um i you know you know and i felt like we needed a more robust discourse about protesting in a pandemic in some ways i also understand that part of what black people get is that now is the time to push because white folks are pushing so hard in this moment because they see a slipping grip on power and so if we're going to bend this thing until it breaks open then this is the moment to do that. Uh, like Charlton Heston said, they wanted pride from their cold dead hands. Um, <laughs> Correct. Their whiteness. But so let me ask you this. Is there anything we can do? What can we do to combat um, necropolitics? How can we arm ourselves, defend ourselves? Or, or, or is there anything we can do? Look, I, the thing that I think, I mean, I think in the, on the day to day, you know, our individual commitment to loving each other well and providing spaces for each other has to be part of this. We have to figure out as a community how to love each other because we've got to figure out literally some ways to reduce our body's physical stress response to all of this trauma and drama that we just current, you know, that we live in. And so, you know, I think people got to be sort of spiritually grounded, however that looks for you. And I think we have to be grounded in community. And I'm very interested to know how the pandemic will reorganize how people live, because I think we're starting to see how much we are not able to isolate from each other, how much we have a deep sense of needing each other, despite this kind of digital era. So I think we will see in the years and couple of decades to come some reorganization in terms of how people build communities and I think we'll be a bit healthier for that but all of this really only changes for black people at the broad structural level 
And so I, I believe in voting. I think we have to get out and vote. And it isn't just trying to shame people about your ancestors died for your right to vote. Is I do think they did that. But I think that we have to get out and vote because policy, sh- so look, black people need broad scale reparations. We need a defunding of police um, and, uh, and using those funds to actually move them into community institutions, be they schools, health clinics and other places that actually will address the challenges that the police have been unfortunately mismanaging because it was never their purview to address those kinds of public health challenges in the first place. Um, so I, I think that this is a moment for us to push for broad structural change. I, I really think and what I hope is that Black people are actually paying attention to and supporting any efforts to combat voter suppression in their respective states. So really tuning in locally to and at the state level, to who controls your election? Who are the people who are in those positions to do it? What are the things going on in your state-based elections right now so you will know what the voter suppression landscape looks like. So does that mean you need to request a mail-in va- ballot? Does that mean that you need to start ordering some kind of PPE now in case we, you know, like some face shields, some body gowns, all of that stuff so that you, so that we can go out and stand in these long lines that we're going to have to go in, you know, go to stand in, um, you know, so folks really got to tune into what the electoral process is in this moment. But I also think that here's the, here is the thing I'm hoping that I think history teaches about black people. We opted for Biden prior to a pandemic. Interestingly enough, Biden is the pre-pandemic candidate that black people picked. And thankfully in the last week or so, we've seen him make some critical shifts to the left. He's working with a lot of Bernie Sanders team. He's working with, you know, uh, with Elizabeth Warren's team to put out policy solutions that actually trend to the left. And we need, we need to move left. So I know why black people chose Biden because we thought he is the person that white people will will actually agree on to beat Trump. I think that that was the reasoning and you know and he supported you know he was second in command to Barack Obama. But the reality is that we're not going to have an economic recovery unless we have real left-leaning governance, right? We got to have something more than your $1200 stimulus check. Yeah. Um We've got to have a long-term solution to this. We're, you know, we're in a recovery phase in the economy right now, but that's going to tank. It's going to tank. Everyone's just bracing for when it happens. Unfortunately, it's probably going to tank just as we're getting ready to go into the next presidency, be it Trump or be it Biden. And Black people are going to need some, some structural support at the government level. And you only get that when you elect progressive candidates on city councils at the state level and at the federal level. These centrist guys, the challenge with them is that they too want a, re- a reestablishment of the status quo. Um, they, want, they just want the status quo where w- white people were mildly racist and black people had a chance. Right, right. <laughs> but young black people are saying, we want more than that. We're not pushing for your leftovers now. We're pushing for a different world to be possible. We know that it is possible. And so we need you to actually listen and pay attention. Uh, and I say that not as a, you know, I was not a Bernie supporter. So, you know, cause I know that it triggers people. I say that simply as I'm, I'm, I mean, I was to the left of Biden. And, and the thing I think is I make, I, what I'm hoping for is that however we play this electoral thing out, that we actually get some real progressive people in who are gonna pass these big kind of sweeping policy changes because otherwise black people are gonna be devastated again. And the thing that we're forgetting is that black people lost over half of our collective net wealth in 2008 with that one economic crash. And we're the only group that has not substantially recovered from that crash. White people recovered all their money plus some. Other groups recovered pretty much back up to the level that they were. Black people have not recovered at all from the last crash. And so we really cannot even in terms of our collective wealth afford another economic devastation and it's coming. And our only stopgap against it will be what kind of programs does the government put in place to keep us working uh, and to keep us having some level of income. You you just said something. It, it, It may not, it maybe can't always be about encouraging people to vote because people died for that right to vote. Maybe even this time it's about, to, to your argument, we got to vote so we won't die too, even prematurely. So yeah, it's about John Lewis, yeah. but it's about folk trying to, 
we we at this rate we not we, none of us will even live to be John Lewis's age. Listen, G. T. Vivian's age. That's just correct. I mean, let's be real about that. That's right. It's a it was a blessing and a miracle they lived to eighty and ninety five. Most of us are not headed in that direction at all, especially right. with this pandemic. Correct. I mean, you said, look, people be treating the voting booth like they going in to do a funeral tribute to those who have gone before. And it's such a terrible way to think about it that it's an outdated thing, but we just do it as symbolic. We don't do it as symbolic. We know that voting actually does change things. We, we've seen it in these low, small local races where people have squeaked past. You know, our elections come down so often to the thinnest of margins in this country. And again, I don't think we have to look at white people for everything, but the level at which they're fighting us about this, the level of cheating and foolishness that they're doing around the vote tells us that they still respect the sanctity of the vote. They respect it and they don't want us to have it. That's because, right. and, and so I think that that tells us something about his power. But no, here's what I didn't say, because sometimes when folks are like, I'm not voting because it doesn't change anything, there are two problems with that. A, first of all, we said that in 2016 and we got Donald Trump and we're living through the aftermath of that. And it, and it is awful. And there are 30,000 black people who would be here, but for that man being in office. Mm. And we got to reckon with that. I'm not blaming our community. I'm blaming him. Let me be clear. I'm blaming Trump, but I'm saying that to the extent that we have power to participate in making things better for ourselves, voting is a, is up until the pandemic was the, was a, a, a low stakes thing. Uh, a low risk thing you could do with very high stakes, right? Uh, so that there's that. But the other thing is, I didn't say that we should only vote. Mm. I didn't say that you should only vote in a presidential election. Who is on your city council? Who is on your school board? Who is in these down ballot races that are gonna determine your state appropriations for things? But also I said, look, I'm fine with these protests. I'm nervous about them. But I recognize that all major social gains come because of protest. I, I work in literal fields in the academy, women's studies, Africana studies, that were born out of kids taking over campuses, demanding those disciplines. So my life has been shaped indelibly, indelibly by protest movements. So I'm not saying that our people don't also need to take it to the streets. I'm not saying that we don't need to innovate and think about new ways to have more ownership and control over food production, over our money, over our, like, but, but, but here's the last thing with regard to that. A lot of black folks want revolution and they, they smell revolution. But the thing that the history teaches me is that the only way we'll be ready for a revolution is if we have figured out a conduit to provide basic services to our people. The reason the Black Panthers were put down like dogs by the federal government is because they recognize that in order to have a revolution, you've got to have a mechanism to educate the people, you've got to have a mechanism to feed the people, and you've got to have a mechanism to treat the people when they get sick. And so that's health clinics, free breakfast programs, books and breakfast, uh, community schooling, all of the kinds of things they were doing, they were building community institutions to take care of the needs of a people so that we could be self-determining. Our communities in this moment are doing protests really well, but we aren't doing community institution building particularly well because we don't trust institutions because we think that they're conservative and they are by nature. But if you don't have a way to serve the needs of the people, nobody's gonna get on board with your revolution. And so we do have to do some significant forms of black institution building and reinvestment or, we're, or our protest movements will have nowhere to go. You get everybody riled up and then what do they do? What do they join? Where, where do they give their servants and talents and money when they divest these things, right? And so, you know, so that's part of the challenge is that we also have to figure out what is the nature of our community institution building going to look like? And that's the moment when you see me as a 39-year-old being like, I'm very thankful for these 23-year-olds who are out in the streets fighting for, for our rights, but don't listen to them when it comes to their view on institutions. <laughs> right, right, right. Because because you gotta have appreciate the history, like you said, you know some institutions have been conservative, yeah. but we've not accomplished anything in our historical struggle over these many decades without organ. Black Panther Party was an organization. Marcus Garvey had an organization. Malcolm X had an organization. Dr. King had an organization. So no, I, I agree with you. And 
even those down ballot races, who you put on the city council and the mayor's office determines the policing policy. Yes. And, who, and you say to them, you either give us civilian oversight, not just civilian review of cases, you give us civilian oversight of the police or we vote you out of office because we're not going to tweet away police violence, unfortunately. I mean, that's just the reality. Before we go, just want to go back to Biden for a minute. Yeah. Can he afford not to pick a black woman? You know, I've gone back and forth about this. Okay. I've gone back and forth about this. And it's really a matter. <laughs> Here, here's, here's my current thinking about it. Okay. You know, early in this, early, earlier, I was like, he's got to pick Stacey Abrams. I, I and, and that she would be my dream pick. You know, let me be honest with people. I also really like Elizabeth Warren. I'm one of those black girls who loves Elizabeth Warren. That being said, I think that he could probably get away with guaranteeing us a black woman's SCOTUS pick. I think he could do that. He's promised that he will do that if if Ruth Bader Ginsburg can hold on till January with this latest cancer scare. So I think that he could I think that he could he could do that. Um, you know, because I'm looking at the kind of options that he has in front of him. Here's the challenge with the black woman he has in front of him right now. You have an older black populace who wants the representational pick like Kamala or somebody like Val Demings. The, the challenge is that young voters call those girls, they call those women cops because Kamala Harris was a prosecutor. Val Demings was an actual police officer. Um, you know, and, and the challenge in this moment is what will it signal to black communities who are very enraged by police violence if what you put in off if what you who you bring to the ticket is black women who they largely perceive as participating in policing not reforming it not revising it so i i think it's a little interesting um so why is stacy off table um she's not off the table for me but there hadn't been a lot of buzz around her of in the last several weeks right so you know he's been doing more events with kamala he's been doing you know elizabeth warren's been pretty quiet uh but he's been doing more events with kamala and you know and even even in the most recent uh interview that i saw him say he said well there are four black women in contention but i won't commit to picking a black woman uh i'll commit to picking a woman i for instance i think tammy duckworth might might come in and and, and be the pick she's a woman of color she's a war vet she has a disability. Uh, so I so I so I think that he might his people might decide that there's another way he can get he can get some racial diversity on the ticket and and then check some other boxes. So I think it's complicated. I just don't I don't think we know enough. His team has been keeping it pretty tight. Um, and um, and so, you know, so we'll see we, we, it, it, it's, you know, and, and I've talked to several black women, yeah. some of whom we mutually know. Yeah. We've been saying of late, why is the pool of black women so small? Mm. That there are other qualified black women yeah. that could fit the bill and in not, you know, be some of the issues that, that you've raised, yeah. uh, which are legitimate issues. Yeah. Um, you know, so well, I, I don't know. Well, Biden's picking, Biden's picking, you know, he's picking more. I know that people are like, Kamala and Val Demings are, I mean, we don't know, we know a little less about Val Demings. Kamala's to the left of Joe Biden, but she certainly wasn't running on the progressive flank of the party back in the in the primary season, right? So now people are sort of trying to rebrand her as a progressive, but Kamala's language about why she ran for president was, I want to prosecute the case against Donald Trump. That's not, <laughs> that's not progressive framing, right? That's right squarely in the center of a rule of law discourse. And so some of this is that our people don't have a, a like, I, I read and wrote about Kamala when she first came into the Senate as a solidly liberal candidate, and I would be willing to stand by that and by my early assessments of her. But the problem is that the, part, the, the electorate has pulled to the left. Yeah. Right? And they certainly pulled, they were pulling to the left in the primary season. And now we're in the middle of a pandemic. People ain't got jobs. Folks are frustrated with the system. And people have a front row seat to watching how terrible Donald Trump is in a way that we didn't six months ago because everybody was grinding too hard. I mean, look, yesterday, just as a, a point about a bellwether of what is happening, Walmart announced yesterday, and then mind you, it's July, that they will not be open on Thanksgiving Day. 
which mm. is a huge money maker for them. Now we it's plenty we can say about Walmart, but when a big corporate giant is like, we anticipate four months out that it's gonna be unsafe for us to open on one of our biggest money making days of the year. That says something. That says a lot. It's tell and, and, and given our our people work for Walmart, you know, like it's telling us that something is shifting in the ether. And I don't mean that as social consciousness. I mean, economically, people are going to be in dire straits and we're going to need something. And we can't have Biden. I, Biden's got to have some progressive juice. He's got to get it somewhere and he's got to figure out how to, how to communicate to the people. And I think, unfortunately, that in 2008, progressivism looked to black communities like having a black face on the ticket in Barack Obama. That was progress to us. Now we're more skeptical of that. Yeah, we want real progressivism. I hate, I hate. Folks, yeah. follow her on Twitter at Professor Crunk. Such a pleasure to speak with her, and uh, what a great conversation. Necropolitics, folks. We need to really think about that really, really hard. It's really no dispute. Thank you, Brittany Cooper. We appreciate you as always. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mark. All right, all right. Thank you. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.